yeah, definitely felt good. It's never been like that before where I can just go and drop a 518 mile, like at mile 19, and then still feel good after. So yeah, just everything just felt amazing on the day. Hello, and welcome to this special midweek episode of The Big Run. The Valencia Marathon was just over a week ago and saw a string of incredible times on the super flat and fast course. One of those was from Natasha Cockrum, who took a huge chunk out of her own Welsh record of 2.30 by running a 2.26.14. She missed the London Marathon in October due to a COVID hit training build, but her decision to toe the line in Spain has now jumped her from number 30 to number 6 in the all-time UK rankings. In this conversation, we break down the race, how leading into it she didn't have the best build-up, how she went off quick and was worried about what might happen down the line, and how it turned out to be one of those races where it all comes together. We take a look at her training, what lessons she's learned from previous marathon build-ups, and so much more. It was a real pleasure to chat to her. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to welcome Natasha Cockrum. So Natasha, thank you so much for coming on the big run. Really, really excited to to learn more about you, and congratulations as well on a, an extraordinary run out in Spain, like just over just over a week ago. I mean, let, let's let's start there. I mean, how, how are you feeling after the race? How was the race? Um, yeah, t- talk us through that that whole experience. Yeah, well, I guess firstly, thank you for having me. And yeah, on Spain, I mean, it went a lot better than planned. I didn't really have that kind of time in mind. Um, I just kind of went out there. My training leading up to it, it went well, but it wasn't amazing. I think my training was probably better pre-Commonwealth. So I didn't really know what to expect. Um, the day before the race, we saw that there was a 228 pacer and I think it was a 234 pacer. So my coach and I, we kind of said, well, 228 is a little bit fast for what I'm the kind of shape I'm in and then 234 is a bit slow so you're like it's a bit awkward so we'll just hold back from the 228 pacer but in the back of my mind I kind of had well 228 is the world standard I didn't know if it was a bit optimistic of me but I thought well I'll listen to coach we'll hold back a little bit and then hopefully close fast and get that 228 to the world standard and yeah I went out the first mile was way too fast thought oh no coaches coach isn't going to be happy went through the first 5k way too fast but I felt I just felt so good so I just kind of stuck with it for a little bit longer I thought I'll slow down a little bit but the pace didn't slow down it just I just kind of got carried through to the end and yeah, obviously a lot faster than the 228 that we had in mind. I mean, extraordinary. And it's extraordinary to think that like, so there was those two options of in terms of pacing of 228 and 234 and nowhere in, in between. I mean, be interesting to see like in, in an alternate reality, say if there was a, I don't know, what what would have been the ideal pacing time for you? Like if you could have picked a, like a, someone to go out and pace you, what would have been the time you would have aimed for? I think probably we would have thought around 229-ish. Um, so wow. I'm kind of glad that that wasn't a pace option because, yeah, I probably would have gone a bit slower out from the start. But, yeah, I didn't even see the 228 pacer. I must have been in front of them, like, from the set or from the go. And, yeah, I, I just I just went with it. I just went with Phil. And I think there was a thought in the back of my mind thinking, my coach knows best. I trust my coach. 
like I am going to blow up if I don't listen to him and I'm not listening to him. I'm going too fast. So I think in the back of my mind, I had this thought like I could get to 20 miles and blow up and drop like six minute miles, but it just didn't happen. I just felt good the whole whole way through the race. It just felt effortless, which I've never really had before in the marathon. And those those races almost to, to describe it, it's almost like the kind of the dream marathon experience that you kind of fantasize about it. And sometimes I always feel like the perfect marathon when I've, when I've spoken to other kind of runners of your, of your caliber, it always feels like slightly a bit of a unicorn in that, that it kind of doesn't exist, but it sounds like from, from your experience, yeah, just over a week ago that it, that it kind of did. Was there, I mean, was there some negative talk that you had to kind of quash in terms of like, oh my gosh, yeah, like mile, you know, north of mile 20, things could go wrong. Was there a bit of a dialogue running through your head throughout? Yeah, there was a little bit, but more because I just thought I don't want to disappoint, like, I've gone against what someone I trust has mm. told me and I didn't want to disappoint him and I didn't want to disappoint everyone around me. I've been in that position before where I've gone out faster and then got to mile 20 and absolutely crashed and dropped by like 30 seconds a mile. So I was like, I know that that can happen, mm. but I got to halfway and I just thought, I feel really good. I still feel really fresh. So I thought, well, I'll just get to 20 miles and see how I feel. Got to 20 miles, still felt really fresh. So I actually dropped a five, I think it was a 518 mile at mile 19 because I was running in a big group of guys and it must've been about 20 guys around me. I was in the middle of the pack, so couldn't slow down, which was nice. But then I found myself at the front of the pack and the rest of the pack kind of dropping off a bit. So I thought, I don't want to slow down. I feel really good. There was a group not far in front of me. So I pushed on to catch the group in front dropped the 518 mile and then relaxed back into like the 535 pace. So yeah, definitely felt good. It's never been like that before where I can just go and drop a 518 mile wow. like at mile 19 and then still feel good after. So yeah, just everything just felt amazing on the day. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And you, and you say you've, you've had previous kind of marathons where that's where that's not been the case. And you were, you, you were saying in terms of the build of it, it hadn't been perfect in terms of the build-up and I know you've had problematic build-ups before there's been injuries with with horses and and various other things like prior to to, to the build-up but in terms of your training maybe if the build-up wasn't the best what do you think you'd kind of put in place in terms of the training like from that previous kind of marathon those previous marathon experiences to this marathon experience to mean that even if the build-up wasn't perfect fundamentals had shifted to allow you to feel the way you did on the day yeah, I think I approached this build-up completely differently. I think after the Commonwealths, so pre-Commonwealths, I put absolutely everything into that build-up. Like, I have a horse as a hobby, and pre-Commonwealths, I was just like, I'm not going to go and do all these rides and go jump in because I'm not going to take the risk of falling off. Mm. And I didn't really do anything. I've pretty much isolated for the three, maybe even longer, lead, three months leading up to the Commonwealths because I was like, I don't want to get covid I was just super careful and kind of impacted my life. It Well, it took over my life because I was mm. so focused on getting ready for the Commonwealths. And then obviously Commonwealths didn't go to plan. So after that, it just took a complete step back. I mean, I had COVID post-Commonwealth, so I couldn't do anything. But when I did eventually recover from COVID, I just kind of enjoyed the process rather than putting it all into Valencia. We kind of said... We've got Valencia, we're entered in the race. If I'm ready, I'm ready, I'll race. If I'm not ready, then we just won't race. Um, so we kind of took more of a relaxed approach, or I certainly did. 
just followed my coach's plan and mm. yeah in my mind I was like if I'm ready I'm ready but if I'm not it's fine it's not the end of the world um and I think that was like the main difference really mm, just taking that that sort of that pressure off yourself to a certain extent yeah and I still I mean I went out and I was still enjoying myself went out jumping on my horse which I probably shouldn't have been doing but it meant that I was happy and I still get all my workouts done and everything else done that I needed to get them ready for the race. And yeah, it just kind of all fell into place. And that, I think that quality of life is like really important because it does, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not like a psychologist or, or, or a sports scientist or anything, but I would like to think that that kind of quality of life, if you're having a, a life outside of your running, that bleeds into into the running itself. If you're more relaxed, you're maybe sleeping better. Do you know what I mean? And then you're recovering better. And then that leads into a better session, maybe the following day or whatever. I feel like building or, or cultivating that kind of, uh, the whole holistic kind of picture of you as a runner kind of all bleeds into the training in, in some way, shape or form. Right. Yeah. And I think everyone's so different. Like there are athletes out there that can just run. And I mean, I think that is great. I wish I could be like that and just run and yeah, fully focus on one thing, but I'm not that athlete. I'm not that person. I need other focuses um, to be healthy, like mentally and physically. So yeah, I think everyone's different. You've got to do what's right for you. Mm, mm, absolutely. And in terms of you as an athlete sort of winding back, obviously Valencia is right in the sort of rear view mirror, but if we kind of roll back, like your kind of progression as an athlete in terms of the marathon distance as well, kind of going from your debut of like 2.49, I think, down to the yeah. time you got eight days ago. I mean, when did the marathon first come on your radar? What was it about the marathon that kind of got its hooks into you? And where had running been prior to that? Because you've been, I, I did a quick power of 10 before we got on this call. <laughs> <laughs> we all do it, hands up. But like you've been, you've been running for, for, for quite some time. So when did the marathon first come on your radar? And what had your running life kind of been before that? And then how did it kind of progress? Yeah, so I started running really young age. I think I was 10, 11. Um, just, I think most youngsters start like cross country and then they go to the 800 1500 kind of track races so I did that as a junior but even as a junior I always thought I want to do the marathon I'm better at longer distances my junior coach back then as well he even said you're going to move up to the marathon one day like that is your distance so I think yes yeah, it's, it's just always been that distance that I've wanted to do it's always been what I'm better at so mm. naturally I fell into it eventually <laughs> So how was your first experience of the marathon then? How was that first 249? Was that, is it in Dublin? Dublin, or, yeah. Yeah, how was it that? It was, yeah, looking back now, I probably shouldn't have done that either because I did, it was just when I was getting back into racing and getting back into running post-knee surgery. I took about a year out post-surgery. I just wasn't really enjoying running anymore. I actually got back into running through trail racing and mountain racing. Um, so I went out to Italy the week before Dublin Marathon did a mountain race in Italy, could barely walk all week because <laughs> it was an up and down mountain as well. And coming down used to just kill my quads. Mm. Like I couldn't, I couldn't sit down without being in a lot of pain. So yeah, I went out to Dublin then. It would have been exactly a week later, only just about walking because the Doms <laughs> had only just worn off. But and I mean, I didn't know what to expect from that marathon, but I loved every moment. I didn't prepare for the marathon. I didn't know about fueling or gels. I just went there and ran and mm. yeah, came away at the 249, which I mean, it's not amazing, but for the first marathon that you've not really trained for, I can't complain about that either. And that kind of 
got me into marathon running. I just loved the experience, loved the atmosphere, loved everything about it. What was it about the experience that you loved of the marathon? Because I think if you said to some people the experience of a marathon, they might go, what, really? Because for some, it, it, it's an experience. I feel like that word is apt and it's an interpret. You could interpret that word in, in multiple different ways when it comes to the marathon. What was it about the experience that kind of got think, you interested? Yeah, there's just so many things about it. Like, I think for a 10K, it's only six miles. Well, and I think less than a marathon, even a half marathon, you can get through it. Like you might be hurting, but anyone can get through it. But I remember hitting the 20 miles in Dublin and really, really hitting the wall. And I think that was the first time I've ever got this feeling in a race where I'm think, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the finish line. Mm. I've never had that before, but I love that challenge and being able to like push yourself and see where your limits are so I think that alone is an experience in itself but I think the marathon running and the scene is a whole new level like the atmosphere was just incredible obviously every marathon varies and differs depending on the city and culture but I think Dublin particularly is a great one to start with because I mean, we all know that Irish people are very like outgoing. They're very supportive. It was on a bank holiday. So like even after the race, like everyone went out together. It's just like a big celebration regardless of how well you ran or, mm. yeah, it was just amazing. Mm. I've not run Dublin, but I've, I've heard many, many an amazing thing when it comes to the atmosphere and the support on the course. Cause yes, you, you draw from everything when it comes to the marathon distance and the support is always important. I mean, in Valencia, Extraordinary, extraordinary sport out on the on the course. So, what was the what was the progression then in terms of you for your training? So, you'd found a distance that really kind of spoke to you, something that you really kind of enjoyed, and sort of seeing, you know, touching up against the limit of where you'd been to kind of previously. So, what was the progression then in terms of taking chunks out of that kind of debut time and, and bringing it down to to where it was sort of uh, where it's arrived uh, just over a week ago yeah so when I did my debut I didn't have a coach um I was just getting back into running and then I ran another marathon I think it was about six months later where I ran 245 so it's quite a big improvement I guess from the 249 um which I did uh no the second marathon I purely cross-trained for I was injured leading up to it so around the 245 off of just cross training, no wow. running at all. Really? Oh, and wow. so it was so it was at that point I was like, well, if I can do 245 off of just cross training, what can I do if I did proper marathon training? But I didn't know anything about it. So that was the point where I thought, you know what, if I want to give this a shot, I need to get a coach. So yeah, I got a coach at that point. And then the following year, I think it was, I ran the 234. So again, that was a 10 minute improvement within just under a year um thanks to actually doing marathon training so i think that was kind of like my breakthrough race Mm. when i ran the 234 where was the 234 remind me where was that at? um so i ran 235 in dublin then i came back in the january and ran 234 in houston 234 in houston i mean that is a, a an extraordinary leap to take what over 10 minutes from from your time um so what was the, and I'm curious about the cross training as well. Like, so there's, there's, there's lots coming out of those times there that has given me questions to, to ask you. So in terms of the cross training, like what was the volume you were doing in order to just kind of maintain a fitness? What were you out on the horses, out on the bikes? Like what was the kind of, what was the kind of combination of what it was you were doing to, to, to um, get that marathon? Yeah. So back then like, it was, I still didn't have a coach. So I didn't really 
know what to do as such. So mm. I'd literally just jump on the cross trainer. I wouldn't really do sessions, but I'd go like three hours at a time, generally on the elliptical. Mm. I'd be in the gym before and after work every day, probably trying to do like two, three hours in the morning and the same in the evening. So it was a lot of hours throughout the week on the cross trainer. And wow. I did that for about 15 weeks leading up to the marathon. So yeah, it was quite relentless. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how are you getting through? Because like uh, the the brief times I've dabbled in sort of getting on the turbo and stuff like that, the mind numbing like boredom that is induced, like what were your hacks? We we talking podcasts, Netflix, like how are you grinding through all of that time on the elliptical? I actually like to make it as brutal as I could. So oh, really? <laughs> I, I would go to the gym. So there's a gym not far from where I live called Simply Gym. And it was like, I guess their theme color was green. So all the walls were just plain green. And I'd literally get on the elliptical and just stare at this green wall. And that, <laughs> that would be it. I wouldn't like listen to music, wouldn't listen to podcasts or anything. And yeah, just grind out the three hours. Uh, I mean, wow. now, now I've kind of changed my perspective because I think if I'm going to go on the cross trainer for three hours, which I don't have to do so much anymore because I think I'm more settled, like injury rise, I'm healthier. Mm. But if I do, I think I'm going to use this time to multitask. I'm going to learn something. I'm actually going to listen to a podcast or yeah, watch something that's educational or that's going to help me. So now I've like moved away from let's right. make this as brutal as possible. But I, I mean, yeah. I can see, I can see the kind of logic because I mean, you know, surely, you know, in a marathon, for a marathon for real, you're not going to be listening to, to music and, and, or watching Netflix or whatever, but there'll be a lot more stimulation from the, the paces or the racing or the crowd or whatever. But I mean, that, that's an interesting kind of first instinct to have for cross-training of just to make it as brutal as possible. Where, where do you think that stemmed from for you with that as your first instinct when it came to cross-training? Yeah, I don't really know. It's just something I've always, like right from the off, it's something that I've done. And like even now for runs and like running workouts, I don't listen to anything. I just go out on my own solo. Occasionally my partner would come on the bike for like something that's really big that I need to practice fueling on. But yeah, generally like, I know a lot of athletes do listen to music or podcasts or prefer to run with other people. But in training, I just kind of like to grind it out mm. because I have this view that if I can do that in training on my own, then on race day, it's going to be easy to do with other people around you, helping you along and with the atmosphere and the crowds like cheering you along, all the adrenaline. So yeah, that's kind of how I view it. Mm, no, I can totally see that logic, I think. And it's, yeah, I, I imagine it builds especially with what three hours in the morning, three hours in the evening of cross training. I imagine it builds a, that's a working day nearly. That's going to build a, a, a mental, an extraordinary mental resilience as well. So you've got a coach now in terms of this kind of marathon uh, timeline. So what was then implemented in terms of the, the coaching strategy to take that huge chunk out of your time to in, in Houston to take uh, like over 10 minutes off your, off your marathon time? Yeah, I think just consistency was the main thing and having actual marathon sessions built mm. into the program. Because prior to that, I mean, I was either just cross training or just going out for runs. So I would, for the first marathon, I would go out for like 15 mile runs. But obviously, looking back now, that's not actually a long run for marathon training. Like my long run now will be 22, maybe 24 miles. So yeah, I think just having that coach there to guide me on what marathon training actually is like I'd have structure in the week I'd have two workouts easy runs and a long run 
And I think that alone was just mm. what where the improvement came from. Mm. And what's the dynamic between you and you and your coach? Because you were saying about like when you you kind of went went out a bit hot in in Valencia and slightly worrying about oh no I don't want to don't want to let the coach down like what's that kind of ebb and flow like between between you and your coach yeah so I've actually switched coaches since my mm. first coach that I got so I switched coaches last January time it mm. was um so it's still fairly new to me I'm still kind of getting used to the new coaching styles and the new workouts but it was actually in Valencia was the first time I met my new coach in person because um, we've done everything virtually. Mm. So that was that was kind of nice having him there. But yeah, we do everything through training peaks. So mm. I don't really have like a, I guess, not, well, it's not a not normal relationship, but I don't know him like super well. Mm. Mm. It's always just interesting. I'm always curious to know what that dynamic is. I've spoken to athletes who have like quite a close relationship and athletes like yourself where it's all kind of done online and digitally and stuff like that I'm just always curious to see what that kind of dynamic is but also curious as well like the changing changing coaches as well like when you're at your kind of level and you know you're aiming for kind of real kind of top tier kind of performances is there like a recalibration period when you change, like if the if the sessions move or they change in terms of intensity or, or just what they are, like does it take time? I suppose that that change. Yeah, it definitely took me time to adjust to the new coaching styles. Um, and my relationship with my previous coach is very different to my relationship with my current coach. So my previous coach, I mean, I'll still message him now. It's yeah, he, we were very close. Like we talk about everything outside of running as well as running. Mm. Whereas my current coach, I'd say it's more, I guess, more professional relationship. If you want to look at it from the outside, like it's very, this is your program. I mean, we obviously do communicate because that's important. Like he needs to know about other things in my life that's going on that could impact my mm. running and like how I feel, how a session's gone. So like there is that communication and relationship there as well, but not to the extent I had with my previous coach. Mm. And what has been the new things that have been implemented then? So you started with the new coach in, in January, we're in December now. Was Valencia like, were you thinking, were you thinking in kind of a 12 month kind of cycle? Like what was, or were you not thinking that far ahead, but what were the kind of things that were, that were brought in that hadn't been brought in previously that have laid the foundation for, for that race last week? I think previously I was very relaxed about everything and my previous coach was very like we were very similar mm. which was great in one way but maybe not so great in other ways like quite often I'd get an offer to go and do a race and the week or two weeks before we just think yeah why not let's go and do it like that kind of happened with LA marathon last year I raced London five weeks prior to LA and then this offer came up to race LA I was just like why not let's just go and do it Whereas now my current coach is very much like, let's look long-term what your ultimate goal is and work backwards. So I have like this set racing plan on my main races, which I guess to reach that next level is what I need. Mm, mm. So that's like one big change. And then in terms of <clears throat> workouts and that, I'd say the biggest change is my sessions are a lot bigger and more intense, but then my easy days are a lot easier which took a lot of getting used to as well. Oh, really? Because had you pre prior to that not been maybe running as easy as you should have been running? 
Probably not. And my because my workouts were probably a bit shorter and less intense, it kind of just balanced out that my easy days were slightly longer and a bit faster than they are now. Mm, so when it comes to your easy run, because this is something that comes up time and time again about like easy days, easy, hard days, hard, and like really leaning into the leaning into the easy runs. Like for your easy runs, are you uh, a no watch kind of run on feel, like start with a Kenyan shuffle kind of vibe when it comes to easy runs now? Yeah, 100%. Like my coach doesn't say you should be going this pace, you should be looking at this heart rate, but I kind of just go out to fill generally it's always around the same pace and I go quite evenly throughout the whole run but like 100% on fill like some days if I am super tired it might be like eight minute mile in but I think generally it's around seven seven fifteen minute mile in for me running on feel super super important something I'm massively desperately trying to teach myself and remove myself away from the data because it's uh it can become a bit of a an attention sucker in terms of the the sessions then so looking at sort of valencia what were the kind of what were the kind of bread and butter sessions and, and how would the week kind of like what would a typical kind of peak week look like in the build-up to valencia for you um so i actually missed two of my peak weeks oh, okay. um so end of uh yeah last week of october first week of november i just hit like this really bad week of fatigue and i just i couldn't really run so we ended up taken a week completely off pretty much or at least four days off I think it was so I missed like the two peak weeks but then we did have other peak weeks in there so I think my highest mileage week was around 120 like 118 ish mm. miles um and that would involve like a longer workout or like a progression kind of run so intervals of progression run and then like a threshold kind of session which would be around 20-ish miles, I'd say. Right. Um, and then a long run as well, which would have paces in, like marathon pace, tempo pace incorporated into that. And then the rest of the week would just be easy running. So I guess two to three key sessions throughout the week and then easy runs to make up the rest. And then what's the kind of split? Like, are you t- is that like a, you're trying to get sort of, you're trying to sort of evenly split them so you've got enough kind of recovery time in between or are you not so worried about carrying a bit of fatigue into into the long run my coach likes to split it like tuesday thursday and then long run sunday Mm -hmm. but quite often with my work schedule and everything else i normally go tuesday friday and then sunday so i have one last day recovery to what he'd ideally like but it just works out easier for me it meant that i could actually do some of my workouts in the light instead of with a head torch on which Mm. It's a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it just kind of depended on my work week as well. But we'd normally split it that way. Because um, this is the other important thing to underline is like you are still, you know, working a job and still, you know, training at this kind of high intensity, 118 mile weeks. So what is the what is the day to day in terms of work? And how do you sort of strike that strike that balance? Because I think that's something people are always fascinated to hear, especially when you're running the times that you are running. Yeah, I guess, like I said earlier, like some athletes, they can just be athletes, but that isn't who I am that doesn't work for me so I do really enjoy having a distraction outside of running as well so yeah I do work um generally 25 maybe 30 hours a week so Mm -hmm. I work Monday Wednesday Thursdays full days and then Tuesdays Fridays it's kind of dependent on the week um but so yeah normal Monday so normal working day would be like get up at 
five-ish, 5.30, get out for a run or go and do my horse, like sort him out and then get out for a run and then get back and work all day and then get out for another run straight after work. So like that's kind of a general day, which I guess most people who want to train for a marathon, that is kind of what they do because I guess most people do have jobs. And what is work for you? Um, so I actually switched careers recently as well. So I'm now in HR, okay. the HR researcher. Oh, uh, okay. So kind of sort of sat, sat down behind a desk, kind of remote work. So not, nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So through lockdown, I switched careers and yeah, working from home now. So punching numbers into Excels and <laughs> sort of formulas, but yeah, sat, sat at the desk. So at least resting my legs. Okay. Interesting. But interesting. You say that you needed it as like, just to kind of add a bit of sort of balance to your life. Cause obviously you're a, you're an ASICS athlete as well. Like if you wanted to, could you go just full-time training or would financially, would that not be possible? Financially, it's like, I'm kind of, I could, but it'd be tight mm. to like, obviously we all still have mortgages and bills mm. and everything mm. else. Um, like I could probably get by, but it's better if I'm working as well. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if I really did want to go professional athlete, and only professional athlete I could if I really wanted to yeah but you also yeah like you say you want to have a quality of life as well don't you and yeah there's <laughs> there are bills I mean exactly Jesus it's 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 snowing in London and we're currently trying to dry a lot of washing and oh the the sort of the fraughtness of turning on the heating <laughs> oh gosh I'm sure yeah many people are, are also sort of going through that uh, that stress at the moment but that's a, a whole other conversation a whole other politically themed podcast so in terms of you, 2022 is coming to swiftly to, to an end. What does, I mean, after that race, what does, what does 20, 2023 look like? Have you, have you talked about that sort of that year long plan with coach? Have you mapped out what the year looks like? Are there, are there races on the calendar? It's kind of a tough one now because obviously I've got the world standard, but it's very dependent on what the other girls race. Mm. So, I mean, I'm in a good position because I've already got the standard and a lot of them haven't, but obviously there are a lot of British girls that are definitely capable of the standard. So it kind of depends on what other people run in mm. January and February time. Obviously you've got Houston, you've got Seville. So there's a high chance that other girls will go faster than me. So obviously we are looking at selection for worlds, but it's kind of dependent on what other people run. We might be able to react to some faster times if they do them in January, February might react with another marathon pre-selection. So yeah, it's very dependent on the other British marathoners at the moment. Yeah. And of course you've got, you've got, you've got Seville, yeah. Seville and Houston rapidly, rapidly approaching Seville's what's like eight weeks or something. So in terms of those other runners, like in terms of sort of obviously keeping an eye on their times, but do you draw inspiration? Cause it feels like there's such, there's so many kind of wildly talented women runners out there, you know, at, at the marathon, at, at the longer distances, like who out there kind of uh, keeps you on your toes and keeps you inspired from, from the GB runners. Yeah. I think at the moment, it's just such an exciting time for all of us. And whilst they are competitors, I mean, they might determine my next races, like, it is so inspiring to see what the other runners are doing and what the other British girls have achieved. Like we all push each other, seeing what they do. It You can't not be inspired by some of them. Like it's just incredible where British female marathon running is at the moment. And even like outside of the marathon, like 10K, 5K, like some of the times that the girls are dropping, it's just 
how can you not be inspired by them? Mm. Any anyone in particular who you uh, who you kind of look up to or admire or sort of yeah take inspiration from? I think from the track, we've all got to say Ailish, and especially as she's an ASICS athlete as well. And I think she's a prime example of we're different people. Like she's living that full-time athlete life. Like she's always traveling. And I think that's just like, it's insane. I wish I could be like that. And I wish I could do what she does. But yeah, I'm not that kind of person. (laughs) Um, But obviously, yeah, she's very inspiring what she's achieved this year. And just her whole career in general. And then in terms of the marathon, like just everyone, like obviously Charlie, Jess, Steph, both Stephs. Mm. Um, there's just so many girls out there that are inspiring. Mm, there is. It just feels like a really exciting time, like you say, um, for for people to to kind of get interested in the sport. People, you know, like myself, spectating it, spectating it at, at an elite level. There feels like there's so many so many really, really kind of talented runners. And yeah, like you say, the, the year is, is slightly up for grabs at the moment. You'll be, I'm sure you'll be keeping an eye uh, on those, on those times, but sort of further down the line, I mean, is, is, is Paris something that you're thinking about as well? Yeah, definitely. I think I'm guessing we all have Paris on our, like as our goal, but yeah, that's definitely what we'll be aiming for. Cross country. Is that on the, is that on the menu? See, a lot of people keep asking me about that, but I don't actually enjoy cross country very much. So probably not. Okay. I feel like it is, I think it is a bit, well, not Marmite, but I think people that have a very kind of strong reaction to cross country in their first kind of experience of it. Like, especially if you've done it at a young age, I feel like whenever I've seen like the real young kids doing cross country at like the Kent leagues or uh, when, we was at, when I was at Mansfield last year, you see like the, the expressions on the young people's faces, you kind of see whether or not they've enjoyed it. It's very black and white, whether yeah, they've had yeah, a good definitely. time out there. I think, I think as a child, I did enjoy it. Like I did it as a junior, but mm. I don't know what's changed. I don't know if it's because I just love the road so much that mm. I'd rather, if I'm going to spend my weekend racing, I'd rather be on the roads than on the cross country. So I think that is probably the main reason. Mm. Well, who, never, who knows? I mean, you know, you did, you were saying earlier that you kind of, you moved back and you sort of stepped back from running for a bit and you kind of got back into kind of trail racing and mountain running. I mean, is, is there a version, is there a world where that is still a possibility for you, like mountain running? Yeah, definitely. I think going forward, maybe not so much mountain running, but I think going forward, I would love to do some ultras, mm. whether it be road or trail, like that is, Yeah. I'd that, definitely like to do that in the future. That's on the bucket list. Are there, are there any kind of sort of iconic races that you're sort of thinking about? Not any in particular, but I want to go like full hardcore, like the hardest you can do. So yeah, I've not really looked into it enough to know which ones are the iconic ones, but yeah, something something along those lines. I feel like that that, that time spent in the gym staring at the green wall is fortifying you for ultras. <laughs> We can see the we can see the lineage, you know. You can trace the dots of you laying the foundation for for a fantastic career at the at the ultra distances. And I suppose looking back on your kind of running career so far, and I mean, it makes it sound like you're about to retire. Obviously, you're you know you're only just kind of getting started, really, especially with the with the marathon distance. But like looking back, and this is kind of an expansive question, I like to ask uh, all of the guests: Have there been any sort of particular and I use the word tentatively, but any particular kind of failures or things that haven't perhaps panned out in the way that you would have liked them that have taught you a great deal as a runner? 
Oh, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I've been doing it quite a long time. I started quite a young age. But I think, so after my junior career, I moved out to America on an athletic scholarship. So in my mind, I had this thing like, go there, turn professional. It just, it didn't happen for me. I had a good junior career, I'd guess, most people would say. And I went to America and it did not go to plan. Like I got slower in my period of time that I was out in America. Mm. I was training like really hard. I thought like the harder I train, the better I'm going to be. But I fell into this cycle where I like was training too hard. Mm. That was detrimental to my performance. Um, So then I finished university. I was really injured from overtraining and wasn't enjoying running anymore because I wasn't doing very well. I was like working really hard at something, but not getting the results that I felt I deserved. And then I saw other runners graduate from university and then sign all these amazing pro contracts and everything like that. And I just thought this hasn't gone to plan. Like I'm not going to ever be a pro like I wanted to be. So I think that was a lesson in itself that actually sometimes you need to take a step back. So probably at that time should have dropped out, not dropped out of uni, but taken a step back and seen what other options there were at that point Mm. um, instead of just like pushing through because I didn't want to look like this failure that dropped out of uni. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, looking at your own journey rather than looking at other people's journey is a big lesson I learned. Mm. And I was comparing myself to all these other athletes that were turning pro thinking that I never would. I kept comparing myself to them. And then obviously I signed my first pro deal a lot later than majority of them, but I'm now beaten a lot of them. So I think, yeah, just focus on your own journey is the biggest lesson I've learned. Because mm, mm, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think like at all levels, I mean, there'll be some people listening that can directly chime with that and some people that perhaps would, you know, not at that kind of stage in terms of their running. But I think, yeah, focusing on your own journey and giving yourself time to have perspective as well. Give If it's a couple of days or, you know, like you've taken a week after after Valencia, it's there's always that sort of slight, oh my God, what, you know, am I going to lose fitness or I'm never going to be able to run again or something? But it's such a, an important time to to reflect, I think, just to yeah, get, gain some perspective and sort of, again, remind yourself of what it is that you value about this sort of weird and wonderful thing that we find ourselves doing, running all of these, all of these miles. Um, love that response. Lovely kind of perspective. And in terms of the second expansive question, I like to ask all the guests on the show, are there any myths out there? that you'd like to take this opportunity to debunk within the world of running? Anything that you think, mm, I think that's probably a bit of nonsense that you'd like to maybe take this opportunity to to tell our listeners? I don't know if it's so much a myth anymore, mm. but I know part of my time in America, mm-hmm. it was like the lighter you are, the faster you are, mm. which was another big reason as to why I wasn't getting the success that I was hoping for. because they had this attitude where the lighter you are, the faster you are. Mm. And it's, it's just not true. Mm. I think it's, it's a very sensitive topic still. Mm. Um, not as sensitive as it used to be. I think people are more open about sharing their stories and more open about it. But yeah, I think that would be the biggest myth that I just, it's really sad to see what it does to some athletes, mm. but it's really great to see those athletes now sharing their stories and coming through the other side and proving that it is just a myth. It's not not the reality of racing anymore. Mm, absolutely, 100% really important to 
to underline that we've had other people on as well who've shared similar kind of experiences around that around that subject and i think yeah just really important to kind of hammer that home underline it underscore a, a million times that yeah light does not correspond to to fast and a, a extraordinary insight and extraordinary kind of experience that you you have garnered and you've started sharing that as well because you i know you are a coach but you also do do coaching as well so how did that come about um, how do people kind of reach out to you if they are interested in kind of, you know, we've kind of teased a little bit of your insight here, but I, I imagine it's, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's fountains of knowledge to, to be had. So yeah, how did the coaching start and, and how can people reach out if they're interested in, in sort of talking to you about coaching? Yeah. So I've always kind of thought about it. I've always liked to help other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I kind of discovered my DMs, like message requests on, um, Instagram, which, I'm not like massive into or wasn't massive into Instagram went through some of my message requests and like I had hundreds of message just asking questions like post marathon I think it was post London marathon mm. during COVID when I got the first Brit I had these like hundreds of messages being like how do you train like what do you do and like just various questions around marathon running basically and at that point I thought why don't I share my knowledge like why don't I make it as an outpeer like make it available to people. Um, it is quite time consuming. So I do obviously charge people, but I try to make it as affordable as possible. Um, and yeah, just like to help people mm. and like to share that motivation of mine, like hopefully sh share the love of running so that perhaps non-runners can get into it and enjoy it as much as I do and then again for runners that always already do love it help them achieve their goals I just love sharing the knowledge and helping other people fantastic and what is the name of your coaching do you, do you have a name for it what's it called yeah so the business name is run to become um to but become. yeah you can find it through my own instagram run to become so if you are interested and you're thinking about it or you're thinking about getting a coach or having that kind of knowledge I mean getting a coach I think is is such an important thing I mean Case in point, N N Natasha, you just talking about it, you know, going from kind of not really having that structure and then having that structure and seeing your own kind of huge progress over the marathon distance. I mean, is there better kind of adver advertisement for, for getting a coach and getting that insight? Well, I'll be sure to to put links to that in the in the show notes and to uh, to sort of steer people towards that if they are interested in that and and just to say Natasha thank you so much for for being such a, a brilliant guest on the show and for for sharing your story and all that fantastic insight congratulations again on an extraordinary time i will be watching the the Houston and the Seville times from some of your uh, competitors and then looking forward to seeing uh, how the chips lay for for 2023 but yeah thank you for coming on and being such a fantastic guest on the big run yeah no thank you so much for having me Big thanks to Natasha for joining. If you are interested in her coaching, I will put links to Run to Become in the show notes and Natasha's socials as well. Be sure to give her her follow. Thank you so much for tuning in to this special midweek episode. Another episode coming this Saturday. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Big Run. Join us in our Discord. The server is live. Slowly but surely, people are trickling in. Come shape the future of the show. Join the discussion. I'll pop that link in the show notes as well. And I'll see you all next time for The Big Run. <laughs>